Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Policymakers and commentators on both sides of the Pacific have argued that as China continues its meteoric rise, it will seek to push the United States out of Asia and try to replace it as the hegemonic power in the region. A new book titled "Strategic Reassurance and Resolve: U.S.-China Relations in the 21st Century" says that armed confrontation between the two countries is not inevitable. One of the book's co-authors, Michael O'Hanlon, is here to tell us why. Mike is a senior fellow with the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence, and director of research for the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Mike, welcome to the show. It's very nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. Why do you disagree with those who say that the U.S. and China are destined to be enemies? Well, first, we we don't take a strong view in either direction, and as you know,、uh, and as I think you were mentioning in the introduction, there are people who. Who will say either that we are destined to get along because we trade and we,、uh, you know, depend on each other for supply chains and prosperity and everything else,、uh, and we have nuclear deterrence to make sure we don't fight as well, or that we're destined to be in a rivalrous relationship、uh, because great powers always behave that way when one of them is rising and approaching the other in some sense. But we basically argue that, in fact, there are elements in both sides, strategic cultures and. Uh, approaches to the world that、um, could go either way, and it's really going to be up to future decision makers to find a strategy that is sustainable and consistent with building a virtuous cycle of of good relations. And、um, you know, there's just no reason, based on history, to be overly optimistic or pessimistic. You asked、uh, about why people、uh, who say that we're guaranteed to fight. Uh, or guaranteed to compete、um, might be wrong, and、uh, I think we will compete. But、um, you know, there are just a lot of good reasons why we should be able to avoid warfare. There's not enough to gain for either side. There aren't really stakes worth fighting for, and the amount of destruction we could、uh, inflict on each other is so great that the best argument against、um, war is that it would be just a terrible, crazy idea.、Uh, but on top of that, I think there are ways to Allow the Chinese、uh, to continue to improve their military and increase their influence regionally without American influence having to necessarily decline or pull back. And it's going to be finding that sweet spot, that trick of、uh, of doing both those things simultaneously that we're going to have to strive for. Well, well, in your book, you say that competition between China and the U.S. is inevitable, but it can be limited to avoid the worst outcomes.、Um, and And given that the title of your book is "Strategic Reassurance and Resolve," would it be fair to say that your solution for preventing the kind of catastrophic outcomes、um, that everybody would like to prevent is through the use of strategic reassurance and resolve? Well, I think that the ideas we have in the book are not radical, in the sense that they build on the idea that both sides have had for a long time of trying to engage each other. But also to defend their basic military and national interests, and so we're trying to、uh, update, in some ways, although it's a fairly significant change, but update、uh, a long-standing strategy of engagement that the two sides have had, but for an era in which China is much more powerful, and that's what takes the work and that's what takes the effort. So I think there are a lot of ideas in there that people will recognize as building on the traditions and the successful. Previous concepts that have been involved in U.S.-China relations, but、uh, bringing them into a a new era.
In what areas would those ideas be most applicable? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one might be on some arms control ideas where we think the two militaries need to work together more to avoid uh, worst case thinking about each other and to build patterns of cooperation. One of them could be uh, on reconnaissance of each other's territory. We're in favor of what we call an open skies treaty, the kind of thing that the U.S. and Russia, along with the rest of NATO and the former Warsaw Pact, have right now, where we can overfly each other's territories. And um, and you do it on pre-programmed flight plans. You don't do it willy-nilly. You have to request permission and approval from the other country, but it still allows some degree of transparency and reassurance. We've learned how to do it with the Russians. I think we can do it with the Chinese. That's just one very small example. And there are a lot of others about military activities in outer space, naval maneuvers where we're operating close to each other, where it's important to avoid collisions. So there are a lot of sort of confidence-building measures we have in the book. We also have some bigger ideas in areas of military modernization and strategy. Well, what um, would the specifics look like in um, in in terms of the contentious bilateral issues that we see, in fact, these are multilateral issues, such as maritime disputes that China has with its neighbors in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea? Well, we don't tell the Chinese or the Japanese how to resolve, let's say, the Senkaku Island dispute. But we do suggest that to the extent that situation gets worse, um, there are various ways in which for example, the U.S. and Japan could respond. It might not be um, escalatory, but could still be firm. Uh, we're looking for concepts like that. Um, certainly from an American point of view, if we imagine the Chinese trying to push out and expand their influence, but, and we're looking for ways to show our commitment to our allies, we need to be able to respond either by building up other military bases in the region or putting uh, pressure on China through economic sanctions or other means that may not require direct use of force. Of course, we don't enjoy talking about any of this stuff in the book, and we're hoping that those kinds of contingencies don't happen. Uh, but you're right to raise the possibility, and so we do try to speak to those as well. What about the cyber area? Um, how can both sides emphasize both strategic reassurance and resolve in, the, in that area? Well, on this one, we probably ask a little more from China because we think that, yeah, China's, China's behavior may require a little more uh, modification. You know, on other issues, we may, re, uh, may ask more of the United States or acknowledge Chinese strategic restraint, like, for example, on the nuclear weapons issue, where I think China's been quite restrained. But on this one, China has not been restrained, um, especially in the area of um, cyber theft and intellectual property, property rights. And I think we're going to have to see the Chinese willing to go after hackers and, and thieves on their own soil a little bit more than they have before, uh, because what we're seeing is um, a little bit of a disproportionality on this one. And there's uh, a European convention on cyber that introduces some rules of the road for how to handle these sorts of issues that we advocate for both countries. When speaking at the Shangri-La Security Dialogue in Singapore in 2012, uh, Leon Panetta, who is then the U.S. Secretary of Defense, noted that the reba rebalance to Asia, uh, among other things, would bring about a shift from the roughly 50-50 balance of U.S. naval forces between the Pacific and the Atlantic to a 60-40 racial in favor of the Pacific by 2020. Given all the drastic budget cuts that the Pentagon has gone through and continues to go through, is the shift towards 60-40 um, uh, Pacific Atlantic still on track? Yes, I think it's still on track. But, of course, if we keep cutting 
uh, 60% of our future Navy may be smaller than 50% of our previous Navy, if you see my point. In other, in other words, the whole logic of trying to use this as a way to increase our presence in the region may not work. And so this is one reason why we're against deep U.S. military budget cuts, even though you might think a book about restraint and reassurance would actually favor some closing of the spending gap between the United States and China. In fact, uh, we also think it's important for the United States to show its resolve and to stand up for interests that are crucial to its well-being uh, and not to preemptively somehow concede them or to, um, you know, fall off our own, our own commitments uh, because that will make people doubt our dependability and it could embolden certain people in China and elsewhere who want to see if they can test our, our resoluteness. So even though the book is fundamentally about strategic reassurance, it also has to be coupled with, uh, you know, a, a clear defense of core national interests as identified by the two sides. And, and therefore, uh, I hope that we'll be able to keep our Navy at roughly its current size, uh, more or less, so that as we make 60% of it focus on the region of the Asia-Pacific, that will be an increase in the overall number of ships that we have there compared with the past. If competition inherently characterizes Sino-American relations, why should chi either China or the U.S. F um, forego the benefits they get from the way they currently behave? So, for instance, why should China forego the benefits of conducting economic espionage against Western multinationals? Well, and, you know, and you mentioned earlier that they, they've got uh, some issues in the cyber area. Um, and then similarly, why should the U.S. not try to contain China's rise now while it's the re weaker party? Well, containment doesn't exactly work if the countries that you might be cooperating with on the containment policy don't even agree on the basic purpose. And so containment is a, is a failure. If we, have, if we wind up in a policy of containment, then we've had some failures because that implies that we're all trying to squeeze China together. Most countries in the region are hoping not to have to make that choice. And if the United States tries to pressure them to make that choice, we will lose partners, and uh, it won't work anyway. So containment worked against the Soviet Union because the world recognized the Soviet Union was aggressive and oppressive. And China has its flaws, but I think it's a much more successful country than the Soviet Union was during the Cold War. And other, other countries in the region feel the same way, and of course they're economically interdependent with China. So if you try to force containment policy, it's counterproductive and unjustifiable right now, and also it, it, will, it will fail. Now, you may have to consider it if things get worse in the future, but we don't favor that now. Um, and so that's the main way I would respond on the containment front. On the issue of China, um, you know, China could try simply to outcompete the United States, or you mentioned the cyber area. Well, if, if China continues to do things that the rest of the world considers to be illegitimate through cyber, first of all, that's going to undercut the basic logic of keeping them engaged in the global economic system the way we have. And we may have to consider things like punitive tariffs on some of their goods. Secondly, it's going to weaken confidence in the security realm and have a spillover effect that will make it harder to cooperate on these uh, security issues that Jim Steinberg and I write about. And right, and Jim Steinberg being your co-author um, uh, of the in, book. In the, uh, right, in the book on strategic reassurance and resolve. So uh, that would be a highly undesirable outcome, and we really want to avoid going in that direction. Well, we've been chatting with Mike O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution. He's the co-author of the new book, Strategic Reassurance and Resolve, U.S.-China Relations in the 21st Century. Mike, thank you. Thank you so much. This is I China Takes it. Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.
Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. In recent months, we've seen some horrific attacks in Xinjiang and elsewhere in China. The Chinese government has condemned these as terrorist attacks waged by Uyghur separatists from the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. With us to discuss the latest attacks and China's handling of political or religious dissidents is veteran investigative journalist Ethan Gutman. Ethan is the author of Losing the New China and of the forthcoming book, The Slaughter. Mass killings, organ harvesting, and China's secret solution to its dissident problem. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ying. Glad to be here. Well, great to have you.、Uh, so we've had a number of very gruesome attacks in China in recent months.、Uh, last October, attacks from attackers from Xinjiang plowed a car into groups of tourists in Beijing at Tiananmen Square.、Uh, this past March, assailants wielding knives. Went on a killing spree at a train station in the city of Kunming in southern China, and then in late April, two individuals carried out an apparent suicide bombing attack at a train station in Xinjiang, and they killed themselves plus one and wounded seventy-nine others. So the Chinese government has obviously indicated some sort of crackdown is coming, and has said that these attackers are Uyghur separatists or religious fundamentalists from Xinjiang. Ethan, do you have any thoughts on why there is an increase in high-profile attacks waged on innocent civilians by、um, those who allegedly have a Xinjiang connection? I'm not sure that there. Complete, you know. I'm not sure that there are. I mean, it, 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 I, I think the level of violence has gone up. Let's put it that way. But、uh, the, you know, it's interesting. My my editor recently contacted me and said, "Oh, do you want to change some parts of your your chapter on the Uyghurs?"、Uh, and I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, you know, based on this attack in Kunming and, and so forth." Well, well, we and, should also point out that your forthcoming book has various parts that deal with. The Uyghurs and 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 the、yeah, resistance yeah. to Chinese. Yeah, it's actually they they kick off the book. Okay, uh, they're, they're <laughs> important uh, group to me. Uh, but you know, I I had to write it back and say I don't know what I should say because I don't know, I don't know that these were Uyghurs. I don't know anything about it. They were wearing masks. Okay,、uh, in Kunming at least they were wearing masks, and I. I You know, were Western reporters allowed to question pretty much anyone involved in the incident? No,、uh, we we have been given no access、uh, to this. And you have to keep in mind that <coughs> this is now. Now add two other factors in. I mean, Xinjiang, or what the Uyghurs call East Turkestan, is literally supposed to supply all the energy for for the next century for China. Uh, so there's a huge economic issue for the Chinese Communist Party here, and at the same time, actually much bigger than what's going on in Tibet,、uh, much much more important strategically.、Uh, at the same time, you know, right after 9/11 or just before 9/11, the Uyghur separatists or whatever there was a, some sort of violent action, and there were some violent actions done by Uyghurs,、uh, buses、uh, bombed and that sort of thing. Uh, it was blamed on the CIA. It was said, "Well, they were really under the spell of the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States, and and it was a way to sort of destabilize China."、Uh, after 9/11, I believe it was three, maybe it was five days after. Suddenly, the whole thing changed. That that approach went down the memory hole, and we were told that the Uyghurs were、uh, Muslims, fundamentalist Muslims. Uh, that were really just an offshoot of Al Qaeda, 
Well, so so the narrative from the Chinese government, you're saying, has changed, but nevertheless, ethnic tensions between definitely they've gone up. I mean, what the press? The one thing we can verify when I say that I know that violence has gone up. The one thing I cannot verify what went on in Tiananmen Square, though that seems a little bit the most plausible of the incidents. Uh, that seems to be the one that uh, would be hard to fake. Uh, the the other two, the train station attacks. I'm really, I don't know what to say about them because I really don't have any sort of inside information or way of, of, of verifying anything. What I can verify is that hundreds of Uyghur males uh, have disappeared since 2009, since July 2009, when you had the riots in Urumqi. Right, and, and I think approximately, in fact, the riots were pretty deadly, and, and I believe um, a couple of hundred people were either injured or killed in 2009, and there were there was pr- some pretty drastic ethnic tensions um, in oh, those riots between Han... What I'm saying is since then, since that time, and I'm not talking about people who even participated necessarily in any of that, uh, people have been rounded up. Uh, Uyghurs have been rounded up. And we're not talking about the sort of the IRA here, the sort of IRA Uyghurs or separatist Uyghurs. We're talking about bloggers. Okay, who mentioned, you know, who sort of put some things on their website uh, uh, suggesting that Uyghur culture was being wiped out, which it is. Right. The Uyghur language is being wiped out, which it is, which Uyghur books are being burned. Yes, they are. I see. So you're uh, saying, are, are you saying that these sort of perhaps people who are, who could be called dissidents, who could be called critics, they've been disappeared or, or they've disappeared? They've been disappeared. I mean, we have no good, we, we don't have a good. Uh, a good, a good word for this, do we? Right, but we also don't know what the uh, the the what the link is between that and these terrorist attacks. No, no, we don't know that there's any link at all. Right. What we do know is that that's not being reported by the press because it's not a sexy story for most editors. I mean, people disappearing in the middle of the night over the course of months and years is not an interesting story. Right. So, well, uh, you, so, you know, you know when, when the Tibetans at least. Uh, if you like, have the sense to to uh, immolate themselves, which does make for at least a story, but even they're not getting coverage for that anymore, are they? Uh, so, I mean, truthfully, we do know, this is the one thing we can verify, is that hundreds of people are missing, uh, mm-hmm. literally have disappeared. And what I, my book, at least, you know, you have to suspect, if they, after you read my book, is that some of these people have been organ harvested. Okay, well, so tell, tell us, you, so as we said earlier, your forthcoming book is The Slaughter, and yeah. it'll be released in August, I, am I right? That's right. And, and um, so, so tell us what happens to the Uyghurs in your book. Well, they were the first, the, Xinjiang appears to have been the kind of a, uh, testing ground for China. So, uh, for example, in the 60s, when they were developing the atomic bomb, their first bomb, they did all the tests in Lop Nor in uh, Xinjiang, and they actually uh, tested fallout on living prisoners, that kind of thing. What kind of tests? Uh, atomic bomb. Oh, I see. So I see. They, they did atomic bomb tests in the desert, but they did it fairly close to Urumqi, uh, and the fallout to Urumqi, and we've seen, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify this, but apparently the numbers that we can get suggest there's been an extremely high rate of, of certain rare cancers 
throughout the population uh, of the Xinjiang, uh, but particularly in in in, in Urumqi. So, um, but, 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 that, but that's not that's forward. not the the crux of your book. In your book, you actually no 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 no. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Sorry, historian's mistake. You go back too far. No, the point <laughs> is that they started. Yeah, look, they they started. Uh, 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 the pro- process of using lo- living human beings for organ harvesting in Xinjiang, and that started in 1994. A- and uh, were the targets regular citizens, or they were, were they prisoners? They were death row prisoners, so people who probably, in most cases, had done something pretty terrible—a murder or something. So originally it was done on death row prisoners. They take the organs. They found that you know if you transplant the organs, well, the person. If you pull them out while the person is still beating, it's like it's like cutting a flower under running water. The fl- the, the, the flowers hold. They, they, there's much less rejection in the new host. So they started doing this in Xinjiang on the actually on the fields of execution, and then they uh, moved after 1997 when you had the Gulja incident, which was another Uyghur rebellion in the city of Gulja. They started doing it on political prisoners for the first time. And, and how widespread has this practice been? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know how widespread it's been among the Uyghurs. It's very hard to figure that out. The estimates range, and this is really speculative stuff, to you know, a couple of thousand uh, people to just a couple of hundred or less. Okay. okay. Uh, and, and in your I, book, I, you I argue you have six, you know, cadres, you know, high-ranking officials checked into at a Rinchi hospital in 1997 and waited for organs uh, from the political prisoner wing. Right, and, and, and in your book, what you, are, you, what you say is not only did the, has this procedure happened to Uyghurs, but that it has also happened to other political prisoners, including Falun Gong, including... Um, Tibetans as well, yes, and some house Christians, but only the only ones I've been able to identify for sure are Eastern Lightning, which is a pretty way-out group. Uh, but with Falun Gong, we've seen extraordinarily high numbers, but of course all the numbers for Falun Gong are, are huge. Uh-huh. Um, uh, well, these are pretty serious are allegations. What evidence, uh, well, um, what evidence do you have to back them up? Well, I think the, you know, what everybody's always been looking for is a smoking gun, well, you know, one piece of evidence that kind of you know, is irrefutable, and this, this book actually <laughs> contains that for the first time. Uh, a doctor who was in search of uh, healthy organs to transplant into his aging patients, uh, who went to China, and after a lot of negotiation was told uh, that they, he was going to get nothing but the best. He was only going to get fallen gone. Uh, that they weren't going to give him anything else. And the, the I cannot give the man's identity. That comes out with the book, but uh, you will know him when the book comes out. <laughs> well, okay? uh, we... is, uh, he, the man is known as a, not only as a great surgeon, but he is at least known in East Asia as a man of just impeccable in- integrity. Well, we will have to wait till the book comes out to yeah, find out who this man is, know, and and I'm also to. Copies here. 
no, seriously, I made a deal with him that I would not reveal his name. Okay, okay. Well, we've been speaking with Ethan Gutman, author of the forthcoming book, The Slaughter. Uh, and the Slaughter, I like to call it. So. The what? The Slaughter. I'm allowed to make an organ harvesting joke here, right? Well, uh, Ethan, thank you. It's been great chatting with you. Oh, uh, it's always good talking to you again. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Thank you.